So there is a dog that uh, lives next door to us. His name is Oakley. Oakley is a fine young pup, nice demeanor, seems to even like me. Uh, Oakley, from what I can tell, as far as his, uh, his training is concerned, it's, it's been mostly done, at least you know, from the outside, what I, looking in, mostly done through a shock collar. And uh, that has worked really well in terms of keeping him from straying out into the other, you know, yards in the neighborhood and keeping him from running out uh, of, of the yard of his, his owners. But I got to tell you, as I have watched this dog and occasionally I, I hear a sound, uh, his yelp uh, from, from next door, I've often wondered in those moments, what's going through his head? Who did that? <laughs> right? If you're a dog and just all of a sudden you feel this, <coughs> you know, in your neck, who did that? And why did they do that? And, and as I've just kind of started to run with that just a little bit over the last few days and thinking about Oakley and thinking about his collar confusion and then thinking about, if I can put it this way, my own, as oftentimes in my own life, I find myself asking the same question. <coughs> Who did that? And why? Now, I know a little bit more than Oakley. Not much, but a little. I know there is a God. And I know he sees. And so all the more, I'm stuck with asking the question, why the pain? Where's that coming from? What's that for? What's that about? This morning, we're going to wrap up this series through the book of Leviticus. This kind of hitting the high points thing. This is the 12th of the 12. And uh, we're going to talk about, just think, meditate upon the reality the reality of the Lord's discipline in our lives. The Lord's discipline in our lives and how we can see themes pertaining to that in our text. So I'd ask you to turn with me if you have a Bible. Click there, turn there, however you like. Leviticus chapter 26, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 26 is where we're going. Uh, it is 46 verses and we're not going to read all that. Uh, that's too much. It would have caused the PowerPoint program, I think, to like smoke if we tried to go with that many slides. So we're, I'm going to read chunks of it and uh, summarize the parts that we're skipping, okay? So we're going to read verses 1 through 20 and then do a summary and then skip over to chapter, not chapter, verse, verse 40 through 46. So that's a whole lot less. It, it's not a little, but it's a whole lot less than if we were doing the whole thing. And uh, hopefully doing the, uh, the summary won't be of distraction, but I, I think that'll be of less distraction if we try to do the whole thing, okay? So uh, Leviticus 26, starting in verse 1, hear now God's word. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. 
If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase." And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Okay, pause. Here's where we're going to summarize, verses 21 through 39. So we've already read, basically the, uh, the curses that are pronounced upon the people, will be pronounced upon the people in response for their disobedience. There are, uh, you could say, five phases, five um, layers, five chapters, however you want to think of it, but, but five sections that, that go on. We've already read two of them. As you read 3, 4, and 5, what you see is I increasing in severity, increasing pressure. Uh, it, it gets worse and worse as, as it goes on, not just from a, a standpoint of uh, panic amidst the people and uh, famine, a drought and famine, but pestilence and war and occupation, and finally the worst of all, exile. So occupation of the land and exile of the people into another. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know actually that's what happened. Tragically. Tragically. That's exactly what happened. All right. Skipping on now, picking up in verse 40. But. Gotta love that word. <laughs> but. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, 
Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them, and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their, their iniquity, because they spurn my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. This is your word. We are your people. We stand in need, in need of hearing and understanding uh, that we might then live this out. And we pray that you indeed would give us heartfelt, deep understanding. And beyond that, to actually walk, even if in weakness, walk before you in faithfulness. We pray in your name. Amen. So this past week, you may have heard the um, tragic news that uh, came out of an investigation from an airplane crash a few months ago, a uh, China, China Eastern Airlines crash a few months ago. After investigators examined the black box, they, can, they could tell that it was deliberately crashed into the ground. Examining the black box, this 730, Boeing 737, clearly it was instructions, controls from the cockpit that took it into its fatal descent, killing all 132 people aboard. What the motive was for that, nobody knows, but we do know that much. Now, the black box, the black box, no doubt no few of us, maybe even most of us, have understand something of what that is. That when, when we hear of stories like this of planes that crash, for whatever reason, the black box always comes into the news because it's what investigators are looking for. Two components with the black box. First, the um, flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. Between the two, investigators can oftentimes piece together all the strewn out, confusing puzzle pieces to try and discern what it was that happened and why it was that it happened. Because, of course, the re it's not always so obvious. It's not always so. There's so many factors in play when it comes to an aircraft and what brings it down. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the size, wherever it took place, so many different factors, and it's not always so obvious, so many different possibilities. Same is true in our own lives, the crashes we experience in our own lives. So many different possibilities uh, in, ter in terms of, of that sort of thing. So, so many different possibilities, so many different factors that are in play. Here they are, in case you're wondering. The brokenness of creation, it is real. This is a fallen world in which we live. That is one of the realities and one of the factors, the possibilities is why we experience the trials and tribulations that we do. Another is Satan is real and his maliciousness, his hostility, his assaults, especially against God's people. That's another factor that has to be taken into account. Another is other people, their negligence and perhaps even maliciousness. That's another factor that has to be considered. Possibilities as to what led to the, if you will, the crash. There's one more. There's one more. Our own foolishness. Our own waywardness. Our own rebelliousness. That's another factor uh, among these others and perhaps an admixture 
of them. Now, what's God's response? What's God's response to his people, especially, when he sees such waywardness, when he sees such foolishness and rebelliousness and hard-heartedness in us demonstrated in our lives? We, are, we know that. We just read from Hebrews 12, did we not? Where it's abundantly clear he disciplines those he loves and we ought not to spurn that we ought not to despise that we ought not to make light of that depending on your translation okay he disciplines those he loves when he sees these things in our lives that's not pleasant it's not fun but it's real and evidence in fact as the text says of his love for us his his perhaps kind of say hard love for us we're seeing here in Leviticus 26, in a corporate sense, but also you could say in an individual sense here, is that God desires for us to know the blessing of walking with him. He so desires for us to know the blessing of walking with him that that's what brings discipline into our lives, okay? We need to think about that, be aware of that, and uh, talk about that here for a moment. Three things that we can see pertaining to the discipline. What do, we, what do we learn here? Three things. If you've got the outline, this is where I'm going. First, the pattern of God's discipline. Second, the necessity of this discipline. And thirdly, the purpose of his discipline. Okay? So the pattern, what it can look like. The necessity, wh- why it's vital. Uh, and thirdly, the purpose, the aim that he has in mind. So the pattern of God's discipline. This you see uh, in verses 14 through 39, that section most of which we skipped through. We see a striking contrast drawn here between the blessings that are promised, right, and the curses that are promised, depending on how we are responding to him. Verses 3 through 13, we see uh, these earth, the promise of earthly provision, earthly protection, even more than that, so much more than that, so much better than that. Even that is the, uh, the wonder of relationship with the Lord. In verse 12, it's so beautifully captured here and i will walk among you and will be your god and you shall be my people where have we heard language like that think back to genesis 2 what the lord is saying here is that as you walk with me i will walk with you and it will be like eden again it will be like eden again that's that's what he's saying here that's the blessings but the curses verses 14 to 39 we see something of the polar opposite point for point where it could have been like this, but it will be like this. And it's not a picture of Eden, but a picture of a living hell. As you keep reading through, all the way to verse 39, showing us that we are not meant to turn from the Lord, from life, and what comes inevitably by that because of his love for us. So a striking contrast is born out here, and a building intensity, I alluded to that earlier, these, these stages that we see here, and the rationale of the increasing pressure This is what he, if I can put it this way, the Lord is so, he's so determined in his love for us. That's the sort of pattern that we see. Even in Levit- Leviticus 26 can be transposed over into Hebrews 12, and that can be transposed in our own lives inter- uh, individually. So I know there's a men's ministry hike coming up next week, right? Corey, still on? Still on? Okay, I got a public service announcement to you and all the other guys, all right? Don't feed the bears. <laughs> Don't feed the bears. And don't come between the mama bear and her cubs. That's a thing, okay? Don't come between the mama bear and her cubs. Her 
fury is a mark of her love, and her love is great. And so she will come at anything that threatens the object of her love. You understand? You see where I'm going with this? That bear images her creator. He will come at, the Lord will come at whatever threatens the object of his love. Sin threatens the object of his love. He will come at sin in our lives. Sometimes with a fury. Sometimes with a fury, which raises a question, a question that we need to be so bold, just looking and being honest with the text, being so bold as to ask, ask him, perhaps in community, one with another, is it possible, is it possible that this pain, these difficulty, these trials that I'm going through right now, is it possible that this is stemming from something you're trying to protect me from? Out of a love for me. Don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. Not every pain, not every suffering has this at its root. That's not the point. Remember I talked about the black box of our lives and all the different factors that are in play? But don't dismiss this one. It's still possible. It's still a possibility that it could be out of the Lord's love and discipline for those who are objects of his love. He desires for us to walk with him so much so. He wants us to know this pattern pattern of his discipline well that then takes us to the necessity what makes it necessary why what what brings it forth at times well think with me who the who the audience is so lest we think we would be above this immune from this who, who is the audience here these are the israelites who have experienced what the passover the plagues they've seen his power they've gone through the exodus through the red sea They've heard of his devotion, his, his love pronounced upon them. They've stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and seen the mountain, felt the mountain shaking. They know of his love. They know of his power. And yet, some for some reason, he feels the need to say these things. What do you think that might tell us about our hearts? That despite all of that, he feels the need to say these things to those very people sobering symptoms apparently there's a disease at work here that they need to be aware of that we need to be aware of so the, the so symptoms uh, you look at the particulars say verses 14 through 15 the warnings the um the verbs here but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant how graphic how dramatic this is is stated and and the, and the summary later in the chapter doesn't get any better doesn't get softer verse verse 21 and then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me now to walk contrary to him other translations put it this way if you remain hostile to me and what's interesting is you read through chapter 26 four times that language is used describing the people's response to the Lord, walking contrary to him. And then three times it's used to describe his response to their response to him. His walking contrary to them. What's going on here? What's going on is simply this. They've walked out on the marriage. The marriage with their God. 
That's a, a sobering symptoms here. Deep source, traced down, traced down to its root. Verse 41, uh, the second part of verse 41. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled. And now that's some striking language, quite, quite an image, an uncircumcised heart. Okay, so it was alluded to earlier in the service already. So circumcision was a, the mark of the Old Testament covenant. It implies that the, at least the adults have ac- accepted and embraced the, the covenant. And uh, what's being described here, though, is not a circumcised heart, but an uncircumcised heart. So clearly that's implying a heart that has not re- accepted and embraced, but one that is rejected and spurned and maybe going through the externals of ritual of what a relationship with God looks like, but there's no reality to it. And so really in their hearts, they're no different than the nations around them who are uncircumcised. These uncircumcised hearts, the the symptoms that are described here, the root that's described here, is why it makes for the necessity of the discipline the necessity of what is sometimes described a severe mercy. A severe mercy that is so, can be at times in our lives, so painful. It feels like, I was going to say inflicted. That's what it feels like. It feels like it's inflicted by the divine physician, but with a desire to save the patient, but it's so traumatic, the patient feels as though they're going to die before the treatment's done. A severe mercy and it's so necessary that the patient that would be us so often sadly presumes we don't need it we don't need it we live with this, such pride and presumption that we don't think we actually need it it's hidden from our sight and our understanding and our of, of, of ourselves which is deadly it's horrifically deadly um, to live under such delusion and presumption. So, uh, to illustrate that, so th- there's a place in southern Mexico, as I understand. In fact, I was watching a, um, Planet Earth. That's what it was. The video, the, the wonderful BBC documentary, Planet Earth, is in, in the cave chapter. It talks about uh, Cueva de Villa Luz, which means cave of the lighted house. Okay, and it's this cave. Uh, it, it's well known in in the area. Uh, as you get closer to it, you're walking through something that you could say paradise. Birds are, are singing in the trees. It's this lush, uh, tropical jungle. There are these 20-some springs that feed the underground pools, and these little fishies are swimming all through there. And you make your way into the cave, and there are rock formations beyond your imagining, and it just sounds so inviting, doesn't it? Don't, you want, let's, don't we all want to go there now? Road, road, road. Here's the thing. If you heed that invitation, it will kill you. Because this cave is taken over because of a chemical reaction of the water with the stone and everything else, it is filled with an invisible but poisonous deadly gas. So let's say we take the tour bus and we go down there. And we see the warnings and we think to our, here's what concerns me. I could about myself and about all of us here in terms of back to that presumption under which we live. We don't think we need God's discipline. We don't think we need to heed his warnings. We would think ourselves to be above. We're tourists. We're Americans. We don't need to bother with these signs, with this stupid cave. Let's go see it. 
and then transposing that over to our need for his discipline and his work in our lives, can we not admit, can we not acknowledge the possibility that there are aims and agendas that we have that are unexamined, that we take for granted, that need to be corrected? that there are paths on which we walk and priorities by which we live that need to be changed. Can we not acknowledge that that's a possibility? Can we be so bold, can we be so humble as to pray the prayer of David at the end of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Can we not be humble enough to acknowledge we may need to pray that and, and to listen quietly to the answer that comes? You see, the, the necessity of his discipline is so real in our lives. He longs for us to know the blessing of walking with him, but with that comes the necessity because of what's true of us, the necessity of his discipline in our lives, which then takes us lastly to the, this third point, and that is the purpose of this discipline. What does he have in mind? What's the larger aim, the larger goal, the intent with all of, of this? Well, I, it's frightening to break our pride, to break our pride. You see that in chapter 26, verse 18 and 19. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. Pride. Pride has been oftentimes described historically as the deadliest of sins. It's the root of them all. It's when we think we have no need of God and no need of his ways. And how does it come? What's the, what, what do you, know, you know what one of the most common causes is for our pride, especially as his people? His blessings. One of the most common causes of the pride of God's people are God's blessings in their lives because we start to think it's a product not of his hand but of our strength, of our deserving, of our merit. And he is intent of curing us of that disease, the disease of our pride. Why? There's actually an even deeper goal it's not just a desire to break the pride and to leave us quivering on the ground. But even more so, what he desires more deeply than even that is our return. The return of our, of our wayward hearts to him, his, for restoration of the relationship. Hence the discipline, which by the way, it's important to use that word. The word to be applied here is not punishment. Punishment when you think in terms of God's children, well, Jesus took care of that. Jesus has drained to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. What we experience as his children, as followers of him, is not punishment. It's not punitive. It is discipline. It is restorative. Worlds of difference between the two. Worlds of difference between the two. And with that comes assurance. Assurance here, you see it in verses 40 and 42. He, he says that, look, with your confession comes my remembrance. Not that I would forget, but I'm assuring you that I will fulfill my promises. Verses 43 and 44. This is so astonishing the way he puts this. 
that I will not do to you as you have done to me. That's the Lord God Almighty saying that to his people. I will not do to you as you have done to me. And then you get to verse 45, which just is sort of the crescendo of it, of it all. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. He will fulfill his covenant promises no matter what. No matter what, he will fulfill those promises to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The question is, will we experience the blessing of that? He will fulfill it. That's unconditional. The question is, will we experience the blessings of that? That's what he's stating, putting forward. He, such a, Again, I've alluded to this already, but such is the extent, the depth of his determination, he will go to any lengths, any lengths to save us. Do you know that of yourself? Do you, do you know that old expression, the apple of his eye? You are the apple of his eye, his treasured, his beloved one. Not just you, plural, which is true, but you, singular, the one sitting in your seat, which, by the way, is you. Do you know that, he, the trouble, the extent that he will go to to love you? The discipline is a mark of that. The discipline is, is, is a mark of it, such as his desire that we would know the blessing of walking with him. All right, I need to wrap this up. Um, you need to know, here's another PSA, it's not for the men, it's just for everybody. Um, so this long-awaited and much-delayed Inklings Abroad trip that Sarah and I have been trying to go on for two years looks like we're going this week. So you're not going to see me for the next several weeks, or her, Okay which is more important, you're not going to see her anyway. Because um, that's who you want to see. Um, so I'm going to be gone for a little while, and it just seems appropriate, Inklings Abroad, that I'd quote from the one of the chief Inklings himself, C.S. Lewis, as we land this plane, uh, thinking about the Lord's discipline in our lives. And here's a quote from The Problem of Pain. If you uh, have the quotes and notes, it's the third of the three quotes there, Okay. Let me, uh, let me read you these words. We are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble he may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. What do we make of our trials? 
What do we make of the hard things and the difficult times? Child of God, disciple of Jesus, is that proof? Is that a sign that he has forsaken you or abandoned you? No. No. It may well be a sign, an indication that fleshed out of the intolerable compliment in your life, of the endless trouble that he will take on your behalf. It may well be a sign of his outworking of his discipline in your life. And if, if that's the case, if that's the case, it can only be for your benefit. It can only be a mark of his love and your status as his child. And it should only be received with perseverance and where needed, repentance. He so desires for us to walk with him. Let's then heed his discipline. Can we pray? Oh Lord, would you please give us the grace to accept the compliment, intolerable as it feels at times. Would you help us to be glad for the trouble, the eternal, endless trouble that you take with your children? You take us as you find us, but you don't leave us as you found us. And we're grateful, kind of. Would you make us more so? You and your love have only our deep good in view. Slow and steady it comes, sometimes though sharp and hard. But nonetheless, you're with us and for us. And it's all of your love. Would you help us believe? We pray in your name.